Well, we are in this uh, final section of dialogue between Jesus and the, and the woman at the well. Um, and today, as we finish out, we're going to finish out uh, the section where the topic of discussion is turned to this matter of worship. Um, and, and as we do that, uh, we'll, we'll set the context in this way. David Foster Wallace, maybe you know that name, he was an English professor, he was an author here in the United States, uh, best known for his huge novel, Infinite Jest. Um, his, his life is an interesting story, it's, it's a sorrowful story in many ways, uh, but Wallace, he was born to parents who were both college professors, it was an atheist household, and even within that, uh, Wallace was sensitive to religion, though he never confessed faith publicly, he did uh, pursue an interest in the Catholic Church for a time, but then disengaged through uh, part of that process, so he stopped doing that. But he, but he was a brilliant mind in many ways, and, and he was at the same time a very lost man. He struggled with depression, among other things, and, and his life ended tragically uh, by suicide in his mid-40s. Uh, and while his life had some significant darkness, he also did display profound insight into human nature. Uh, in 2005, so three years before his death, he gave a commencement speech at Kenyon College. And as we, as we think about the subject of worship today, I want to read to you this brief section from his speech. So, so it goes like this. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for worship, uh, the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough, it's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly, and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally bury you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And then he says this, look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are all our default settings. They are default settings. So, so, so very insightful comments from a man who seemed to ultimately be destroyed by his own inner darkness, but the comments are accurate. Everybody worships, but what we worship can tear us apart. And what we've seen in this interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman is a wonderful example of being renewed in a proper orientation of worship. Not, not one that destroys, but a posture of worship that ultimately responds to the life-giving and cleansing good news of God's grace. So as we've worked through this narrative, we've seen that this Samaritan woman is, is starting to see that there's something very different about Jesus. She's moved from thinking this is a strange, a socially awkward man of no, of no consequence to now perceiving that he's a prophet and, and the truth that he tells her about her own life is affecting her and the, and the cleansing living water of God and, and, and His grace that He's offering, that's starting to have an effect on how she's thinking about things. So, so things are changing for this woman as she's engaged with this dialogue with Jesus. She's beginning to understand something of the fact there's, there's grace for her in all her, in all her impurity, there's forgiveness, there's cleansing, and, and, and we know things are changing for her because she asks that worship question that's there in verse 20. 
And you remember from our, from our studies in the last two weeks that based on the conflicting viewpoints between the Samaritans and the Jews during this time, she's, having this quest, she's presenting this question about proper worship, uh, but we just see how fitting this question ultimately is when we realize that everybody worships. As humanity, we're created to be worshiping creatures, but our worship gets distorted. As, as Wallace puts it, we start worshiping things that will eat us alive. So, so this woman has focused her life primarily, as, as the text displays, on relationships that can never satisfy. So five husbands, and now she's living with the man who's not her husband. Um, she, she's engaged in this kind of anchor of hope that ultimately has proved to be nothing but, uh, but trouble and discouragement, and now ultimately alienating as she's moved through these relationships. Um, so she's placed her hope there. She's, in a sense, worshipped the hope that relationships can offer. However, that's brought her to this place of, of ruin, this place of, of, of disordered desires and thinking. But then she encounters the living water of Christ. And, and instead of subjecting her life then to these things that had promised relief and didn't offer relief, ultimately, she's been renewed. And we can identify with this kind of reaction to the good news of the gospel because as we are subjected to the realities of Christ and what He promises in the cleansing streams of living water of His grace, and what happens to us is that instead of our hearts being, being closed off to the realities of God, seeking to be fulfilled in other areas, instead the realities of God's kindness are open to us. Uh, we're recognizing that He's the one who makes us clean, drawing us near to Himself through what Jesus has done. And as we start to recognize this gospel grace for what it really is, things change, we change, and that means our compulsion to worship changes. There's a reorientation. Uh, we're reoriented away from what can't satisfy, as in this woman's case is reflected in the many husbands. We're reordered away from what can't satisfy, ultimately to a life of trusting and praising the God who can give life. We turn back to the living God. And as that happens, in effect, we have this woman's same question. What does it really look like to worship properly? Well, what does it really look like to have my heart oriented toward this God who's promised these cleansing streams to me? Again, for this woman, the immediate practical concern would have been uh, properly offered sacrifices. She, she wants to respond in worship to what God is, is giving her through this message that Christ is bringing about the cleansing streams for her in the context of that old covenant understanding with the Samaritan overtones and all of these things. For her, that would have meant, I need to go offer a sacrifice for my sins and, and demonstrate a reoriented heart in that way. So she asked the question, which mountain shall I go to? Where shall this worship be offered? But in effect, while her question is different than our question may be given geographical realities and, and rituals of the Old Covenant and that kind of thing, uh, we recognize that her question becomes our question as we're introduced to the grace of God. We want to understand worship more properly, more correctly. God has saved me. How do I then orient my life as a result of the saving kindness He's shown me? And, and so we talked about uh, some of the details of the woman's own situation last week, but we see that this cleansing kindness of Christ comes to us, and our question is very similar in that we do ask, how shall we then worship? And we saw how Jesus began to answer that question last week in verse 21 when Jesus spoke to her about place. 
and we unpack that a little bit where the geographical realities are becoming obsolete in the work that Christ is coming to do. And then he says a word to her about source. Uh, salvation is from the Jews. The reality that we've been purified for worship is sourced in the fact that Jesus, uh, the man born in a, in a Jewish family, is the promised one come from God who can bring us the, the, the purity that we need. So, so we said something about source in verse 22 last week. And now, as we continue to think through these truths about a worshiping life that Jesus is helping this woman to understand, now this week we're going to pay attention to the nature of worship as Jesus unpacks it in 23 to 26, so the nature of worship, and then not just that, but the nature of God as that relates to our worship, and then we're also going to say something about our expectations as we engage in a life of worship. So, so that's where we're going to go today in verses 23 to 26, the nature of worship, the nature of God as that relates to worship, and then uh, something of our own, our own expectations with regard to these things. Uh, and, and we recognize the place of help for us in all, in all of this. As we think about this, we can remind ourselves often, we can't remind ourselves often enough that, that we have the same need and we have the same grace and the same response as the woman in this passage. Well, in a sense, we're, we're, we're so many uh, miles removed from this context, we're so many historical eons removed from this experience. Like the woman, we understand that we're born worshipers, but we source our hope in sinful places. Like this woman, we understand that, that we have uh, tried to find peace and joy and fulfillment and things that don't ultimately give peace and joy and fulfillment, but then we hear the gospel. We hear the good news. We hear about Jesus' promise of cleansing for us. And because of His work on the cross, uh, the restoration is there and we no longer uh, desire to worship what is false, but we desire to serve the Lord properly. And so we consider these truths today from a place uh, that is very real and very appropriate in our own lives as we seek to follow God given the fact that He saved us. So we'll think through this uh, and we'll... we'll We'll, we'll make it through. There's so much here. Again, I, I, I do struggle to make these things short, um, but, but we're going to make it through this section today. I'm very committed to that. That's what we're going to do. We'll, we'll, we'll work hard at it. So you can look, first of all, at verses 23 and 24, and there we have something about the nature of worship. We'll start there, 23 and 24. In fact, let me just uh, read those again so they're fresh in our minds. Jesus says, an hour is coming. Now, we won't get all the way into this today, but you remember how hour is potent in John. We talked about this last week, where hour uh, very regularly refers to the effects and uh, the events and the effects of Jesus' passion. So him going to the cross, the hour is, is referring to that. So Jesus is referencing uh, the fullness of what he's going to accomplish when he says this. An hour is coming. Uh, there's going to be a time when the fullness of what I accomplish has come. And then he says, and is now here. So there's something actually physically present in the, in the fullness of the grace of God that, in the reality that Jesus is present with her now. So, so what we look forward to climactically in Christ's accomplishment, in a sense, is already there present with the woman in Christ's own personhood. He's come, He's there. So an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him, He says. Um, so, so, so immediately we catch that Jesus is drawing a distinction as he uses this word translated as true here, true worshipers. Uh, so in this verse, Jesus is concerned to speak about what makes a true and, and genuine, a faithful worshiper, we could put it that way. And, and we remember that, that, that we're all worshipers, we've talked at length about that, but worship can be false worship. 
Uh, like we read from Paul last week in Romans 1, where he tells us that what actually marks out our fallen condition in, as humanity in general is the fact that we worship created things rather than the Creator Himself. Uh, to worship created things is false worship. Uh, to worship the Creator is proper worship. But, but even that worship of the Creator, for it to be true and faithful worship, it's not just a big open category. It's not just a matter of saying, the God of my thinking is the God of the Bible, so, so anything I say is worship and, and is genuine and so on, simply because I have the right object of worship in my mind. Right? It's bigger than that. In fact, we remember the narrative um, from Exodus, the Exodus account where Moses has been up on the mountain and the people are convincing Aaron, hey, we need to, you need to build us something that we can worship. We need a God to, to worship. And Aaron tries to get out of the responsibility later on when Moses gets him in trouble for it. But Aaron ends up collecting all the, all the jewelry, all this thing, making a golden calf. And what does he say about the golden calf? He doesn't say the golden calf is some foreign Egyptian God that we ought to worship now because, because Moses is gone, so we're going to ditch Yahweh. No, he says, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. He says, here's an image of the God who brought... So, so in a sense, Aaron's not saying this is a different God. He's saying this is the God we've been talking about the whole time. But how's he doing that? Well, he's doing that in the wrong way. Right, right God, wrong way. way that God is prohibited. Right? So, so, so we can't just worship in a way that we see fit. No, no, worship of the living God is defined by the living God. So more specifically, the, the climactic worship that we can now offer, having been cleansed by Christ, is worship that is defined by Christ Himself here. And, and so in this verse, Jesus defines true worshipers as those who worship in spirit and truth. Okay, so we need to think through that. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. What, is, what does this mean? Um, well, well, let's first think about the implications of worshiping in spirit. Uh, as we think about worshiping in spirit, we, we have clues in John's gospel as to what this involves. Uh, on the one hand, we already know from John chapter 3, in Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus there, that God the Holy Spirit is the one who makes our hearts new to see the kingdom of God. And, and we know from later on in John 15 that God the Holy Spirit is also referred to as the Spirit of truth. He guides us into all truth, the Holy Spirit does. So, so without the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we do not have eyes to see God for who He is, and we do not have the capacity to worship Him properly in, in the truth He reveals to begin with. And, and, and so the ministry of God the Holy Spirit is central to our lives as true worshipers. But this reference here to worshiping in spirit seems to be uh, something different than a mere reference to the Holy Spirit. There seems to be an additional emphasis here on, on our own uh, supernatural engagement with God, which flows from our internal spiritual life. Of course, a life which John presumes we understand now has been renewed and is now empowered by God the Holy Spirit, right? But, but there is a personal aspect to this that's in view. Uh, Jesus is saying more than just worship in the power of the Holy Spirit, He's actually making a reference here to something unique about our spiritual lives as we offer those lives in worship. And, and so along those lines, it can help us to know that in John's gospel, this word translated spirit can refer to God the Holy Spirit, and that's the reference that's present most often throughout the gospel. Uh, but John in other, time, in other places, he'll use the word spirit to refer to the internal spirit of a person. Right? We might even say soul 
the, that internal uh, non-material aspect of our personhood. So, for example, in John chapter 11, we're told that Jesus' spirit was troubled over the death of Lazarus, right, and, and, he, and the sorrow that it caused to Mary there. So, so there's a reference in John chapter 11 to the internal spirit of a person, the spirit of Christ in that case, the internal spirit of, of Jesus in that sense. So, so it's an interior description of that part of our personhood which is distinct from our physical being. Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled, John eleven thirty three. And so when we think about what's here with this reference to spirit, rather than just constrain this comment by Christ to the work of the Holy Spirit as, as the Holy Spirit empowers us and, and renews us for worship, all of which, of course, is central and critical and true, um, it's most helpful to see this as a reference to the regenerated nature of our own spiritual life, obviously a, the product of God, the Holy Spirit's work, but, but this worshiping in spirit is a reference to the internal, renewed nature of our own spiritual life as we engage with God in worship. And this is, this is further clarified for us when we, when we recognize what this is in contrast to as Jesus is speaking about things here. Because we have to remember, Jesus is speaking in the context of, of the woman's question, which mountain shall we worship on, this mountain or that mountain? There's, there's temple worship involved, the, the physical, ritualistic worship that all takes place in those uh, contexts, the old covenant framework, all of that. So he's speaking to her in answer to a question about very material geographical places. Um, he's speaking to her when sacrifices and temples and feasts and all of these things have dominated worship. But an hour is coming and is now here as verse 23 says, that there's this new era in history which is open through the ministry of Jesus where worship attached to physical realities is virtually obsolete and the internal posture of the worshiper is what is most emphasized, what is most critical. Now, now it's always been critical, but now the emphasis is even greater as the Spirit of God is going to come and dwell in us as new covenant believers. All right? So, so, for example, in Matthew 15, we have Jesus quoting Isaiah to the religious leaders of the day where, where the Lord says through, through the prophet Isaiah, these people worship me with their lips, right? you know the rest of that, but their heart is far from me. Right? This internal kind of language there. And in the context of religious practices, all these old covenant externals could be done by people, sacrifices and so on, and all the while the internal, genuine spiritual life of the worshiper would so often be dulled or even dead. Right? Mouths that worship, but hearts that are far from God. So as, as long as I do the right stuff on the outside, I'll look proper and right before God in worship. That was, that was the, that's the human condition problem in these, in these situations. But Jesus comes and He says, the cleansing offer of the gospel renews us in genuine worship, which is spiritual. It's a life lived, oriented toward the honor and obedience of God, empowered by God the Holy Spirit who renews us internally for genuine spiritual acts of worship. So there's an emphasis here on the fact this is a heart condition thing. It's an internal matter. In fact, Paul speaks about this in his letter to the Philippians. Uh, right before he, he denounces the physical realities of his Jewish heritage, all those things that are true about me, my Jewish resume, uh, of, of all these things that would otherwise put me in a very high place of religious standing, which Paul says, I actually count them all, all but dung in comparison to knowing Jesus. Right before Paul goes, goes down that line, he says in Philippians 3 that we, new believers, we're the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Jesus, and do not put our confidence in the flesh. 
So he's, he's, Paul's picking up on that reorientation. We're not looking to be right before God because of mere externals. We're looking to live a life of worship which flows from a heart that's genuinely oriented toward the living God. It's a, it's a spiritual thing. It's not an external rituals thing. And while in the days of temple worship and sacrifice, this would have been a critical truth to understand for the woman at the well, especially with the onset of the new covenant and the indwelling spirit and all of those things that happen on the other side of Pentecost, uh, it, it remains still a critical truth for us to understand today. We need to think through this uh, because we can get caught up in the physical externals of a worship-filled life, which aren't necessarily wrong in and of, in and of themselves. In fact, often they're, they're, they're very right to be engaged in, but some of those externals can begin to sneak in the play, into the place of being the primary substance of what we do instead of the, the fruit of a spiritual posture of heart. You see, so, so we, might, we might pray before the day begins. We get up and we engage in our devotional life, which is a good thing. Or our moral compass is, is tuned by God's Word throughout the day, which is, which is a very good thing. We come on Sundays to worship and we sing and we have our Bibles out and we're, we're considering the significance of Christ's sacrifice, all of these kinds of things. These are all externals. They're all good things. And while we never want to belittle any of these kinds of fruit, all of which are commanded and directed from the Scriptures, we're engaged in these things obediently, and we don't want to belittle any of that kind of fruit, but we also always want to be asking the question, is my heart in it? Am I, am I really worshiping as I engage in these ways? Or as the, as the Puritans would say, am I worshiping from a genuine interior life of praise? From an interior life of praise? Or is this all just routine outside stuff? The psalmist gives great voice to this interior life of praise in Psalm 63. Uh, for example, when he says, O oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. If you know the psalm, the next line, my soul thirsts for you. That's internal spiritual language. My soul thirsts for you. And then he says, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Right? It's a whole body longing for the Lord. I grew up in a rural Oregon town that was in the Guinness Book of World Records for having the most bars and churches per capita than any other town in the United States. Uh, and that tells you something, especially when in that social climate, the crowd who went to churches wasn't supposed to be the crowd who went to bars. And just about everybody went to church, so you can do that math. Um, so there was a lot of religious routine in that town, a lot of external religion. There was worship on Sunday, but so much was merely external. Right? It was right to go to church, but often, not always, but often, it wasn't true spiritual worship. The religious routine that was offered in a climate of mere cultural Christianity was not connected to a supernatural life of renewed worship as Christ speaks about that here. The religious routine was just that, a culturally acceptable moral framework and lifestyle that looked proper. But true worshipers worship in spirit. Our, our external activities are very present and obvious. We should all be seen singing our hearts out on Sunday morning, no doubt but it's not mere externals. All those things flow from an internal life of spiritual longing for the majesty of the living God. So Jesus says, true worshipers worship in spirit. And we long for that. We, we long to worship in spirit, don't we? We feel our weakness in that. We feel our, our, our neediness in that. Right? We feel the fact that things can so often fall into coldness and routines and that kind of thing. But, but, 
but we recognize that this truth is what we're called to, and we'll, we'll speak more to, our, to the weakness we feel in those things in just a moment. We recognize that what Christ is calling, to us, calling us to here is this life of spiritual worship, and, and not just this worship in the Spirit, but, but also this nature of worship is, is a matter of spirit and truth, and truth. So, so we're, offered to, uh, we're called to offer our lives in a way that displays the great value of God, that's, that's the function of worship, displaying the great value of God, and we're called to do that in a way that, uh, that, simply, uh, that doesn't simply align with our preferences, but we're called to worship in a way that aligns with the Lord's revelation, right? That's, that's that truth aspect, worship in spirit and truth, uh, which of course is a revelation that centers climactically on Christ. Again, we'll get to that more here in just a little bit. But this worshiping centers on the fact that the internal posture of our heart expresses itself in external ways, and the way our worship is expressed must align with what God has called us to according to His revealed will and His Word. This is where we can bring up what we mentioned last week about worship, worship on Sunday mornings as an example. Right, we, we live in a beautiful place in the Pacific Northwest where the glory of God in creation is on extraordinary display all year long. Right, I don't know why more people don't move here. I'm kind of glad they don't, uh, but, but this is just an amazing place. It's a beautiful place to live. Right? And the creation declares the glory of God. We know that. And I can honestly say that I enjoy being out on a mountain road or, or looking out of the ocean from Depot Bay, and that, and that makes me worship. That draws us out in worship when we're in those kinds of places. It's amazing. There have been more than one occasions where I've been riding my bike, uh, my motorcycle through the Rocky Mountains, singing, singing the doxology all alone in my helmet because of how amazing creation is. You probably didn't need to know that, but it has happened. But, but, but it's worshiping in spirit and truth. If I'm drawn out in praise to God in those moments, you go out and you look at the ocean, you're drawn out in worship. It's the extraordinary creative reality of who God is. It should draw us out in praise. However, it fails to be worshiping God in truth if I determine that I would rather stare at the mountains week after week, calling it worship, and week after week miss the gathering of God's people on the Lord's day. Because while true worship takes place anywhere, true worship does not take place in any way. It must be offered according to the truth of God's revealed will for us as worshipers. So that means, for example, that on the Lord's Day on Sunday, at least on most Sundays, we have vacations now and again, which are wonderful gifts from God, from God too. But on Sunday, we're gathering as Scripture commands us to gather, and we're singing God's praises and hearing His Word and participating in the Lord's Supper, witnessing baptisms, all of these things that we do on Sunday, because worshiping in truth is constrained by God's revelation to us, and we're directed to gather together in corporate worship on Sundays. And, and, and so we recognize that, that while we worship in truth, it's not just a matter of mere preference, but it's actually a matter of offering ourselves to God in the way He calls us to offer ourselves to Him, which according to Hebrews 13, just by the way, includes everything from being faithful in our marriages to confessing the Lord's name in corporate worship. It's the totality of our life. So, so true worship can take place anywhere, but true worship does not take place in any way. And we need to be, uh, we need to be conformed by that truth. It, it is constrained by the truth of God's revealed will. So, so we can be trained by this word from Christ in terms of the nature of true worship as we recognize that it is first and foremost a matter of our internal life renewed by the Spirit of God, Worship isn't rooted in externals. It's rooted in a new heart that longs for and lives for the honor and praise of God who saves us. Worship in, in spirit. And worship is also a truth exercise. 
right? I offer my life of praise in a way that's aligned, not with my immediate preferences, but with God's revealed purposes. Right, so we can, we can actually say a good example of this is, is, is money. Last week we talked about how money can be idolatrous and can be that thing we worship that can carry us away last week or the week before. And so let's say something about money on the good side of worship. Right? We recognize that, that there's something actually extraordinary in the fact the Lord calls us to give gener- generously, compelled by Christ, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. It, it would not be, just speaking personally in my tightwad nature, it, it would not be my internal immediate preference to give money away. Right, if I were listing off the things that seem good to me for worshiping God, it would be, I'll keep that for me and maybe I'll give something else. I'll do something else to worship. Right? But the reality of the quickening work of the Holy Spirit comes and it changes us, it reorients us. So we would do things we might not normally do given our personality or our inclinations or any number of other things. Maybe it's just my selfishness, whatever it might be. But He comes and renews us and then we offer ourselves to Him in those ways uh, that, that reflect uh, what, he's, what He's called us to because He's made our hearts new. So we have that spirit and truth going on there. My spirit is renewed, and in truth now, I'm going to offer the worship He calls me to offer. So there's something there just about the, the nature of worship, which we can, we can meditate on and, and, think, and think about. Um, and then along with that, we also need to say something about how the nature of worship is, is connected to God's nature, uh, which is what, what Jesus goes into next here in verse 23. If you look at verse 23... Um, let's see, we'll worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. Then into verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. So the end of verse 23, beginning of verse 24, um, we see, first of all, in the end of verse 23, uh, we're told that those who worship in spirit and truth are the worshipers. Now, the CSB translation says this, worshipers God wants. It makes it sound a little bit like, oh, I hope I get them, right? But that, that doesn't quite do justice to the translation or to, to the Greek text that's there because, because really what we have there is, is, is that seeking word that shows up in, God, in John's gospel. So the Father is seeking such worshipers. He's not back wringing His hands, but He's actually actively engaged, drawing people to Himself in worship. You see, it's a huge difference in, in notion there when we, when we adjust that word a little bit. So, so it's the seeking word there. The Father is seeking worshipers. So that's, that's number one in terms of the nature of God in relationship to worship. Uh, we're told that those who worship in spirit and truth are the worshipers God is seeking. He's seeking. And this is a profoundly helpful statement, not least of all for the Samaritan woman. Because no doubt in her mind at this point, she might have felt quite alienated from the possibility of living a life that would be pleasing to God. Not, not only was she a Samaritan, so her people were already the religiously uh, the, the black sheep of the day, if we can put it that way, uh, but she was also clearly involved in a life of sin, sin that tangled her up and left her now in the situation she's in. She would have no doubt felt removed from the hope of ever being a, a pure and genuine, worthy worshiper of the living God, as she might have categorized it. But, but you see, what Jesus is doing here is He's framing all this in gospel thinking. Jesus doesn't say God the Father is seeking people to worship Him who have a history of perfect moral character. And Jesus doesn't say that God the Father is seeking people to worship Him who are of a certain family background or or who have have first cleaned themselves up and met a certain religious deeds and service quota. No. 
The Father is seeking worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. In other words, God the Father is actively engaged in seeking out those who will be renewed by His grace and come to Him according to what His revelation reveals in a way that, that accords with His revelation. So, so God comes with the cleansing, I respond with the praise. The Father is the seeker, I'm not the seeker, which is an extraordinary thing. Because so often we feel the burden of being the seeker. I must find the answer. It's on me. And I must gain the knowledge. I must accomplish the requirement. I must make the grade. I must, I must. I'm seeking, I'm looking. It's on me to do the finding. No, Jesus says, the Father seeks worshipers. He's the one who comes for us. He's the one who ultimately draws us to Christ's salvation. He's the one who brings us into the fold of His gospel family and renews us to live the life He's called us to. So when we think about the nature of God as it relates to worship, we must recognize that we're not living a religious life trying to climb the mountain and find the guru at the top. No, when we think about the nature of God as it relates to worship, we must know that we're too far down the mountain to ever climb up. We would never find Him, but He comes down and finds us. Right? He sent His Son to seek and save the lost. The, the nature of God as it relates to true life-giving worship, the nature of God is that He seeks us out to bring us back to a place of reoriented life with Him. Right? He's the seeker. And not only that, but we also read here that He's spirit, Jesus says. God is spirit. And this is why we must worship Him in spirit and truth, verse 24, because He's spirit. So, so, so something essential to the very being of God is His spiritual existence. God the Father does not exist in physical bodily form. God the Son does now, having taken to Himself human nature and being bodily resurrected to His place of honor. But God the Father is spirit. It's a comment on His essential being by Jesus here. God is spirit. So says one commentator, we must not think of God as material or as bound in any way to places or things. Since He is essentially spirit, it follows that the worship brought to Him must be essentially of a spiritual kind. This is why we, we can relate to God in a worshipful posture in all times and all places. God is everywhere present as a, as a spirit. He, he's always present. I offer spiritual worship to Him in my workplace, not because there's anything holy about the space, but because there's a holy desire to please the Lord that flows out of a renewed heart and expresses itself as I work unto the Lord in the sphere of my responsibilities. In the classroom at school, it's the same thing. I exercise myself well there because I recognize that God is spiritual. I offer spiritual worship wherever I am. He's present there with me, and He understands that my posture of heart is turned toward Him in praise as I go about my daily tasks, whether it's loving my family well or serving my neighbors, caring for my friends, offering our, our time and voice and, and, and friendship on Sunday mornings and, and worship. All of these things are done from an internal posture of heart that's turned toward God in spirit who is spirit. So he hears and he sees and is pleased. So, so the nature of God as his nature relates to worship, he's, he's a seeker, he's seeking worshipers, that's who he is, and he's spirit. That's also who He is, which means, I mean, on a very practical level, I don't need to walk into the beautiful Catholic church up the street and sit in the stained glass rooms that surround me and in the physicality of all that to believe that God is going to hear me when I'm crying out to Him in my trouble. 
I don't need to do that because he's spirit. Physicality doesn't limit him. And so spirituality marks my offerings to him. So, so we've, we've had something about the nature of the worshiper, right? True worship. Worship worships the Father in spirit and truth. We have something about the nature of God as He relates to the act of worship. He's the seeker um, and he, he's, he's spirit. So we approach Him in, in the context of those things. And now uh, we're going to say one last thing here from verses 25 and 26 about expectations in worship. Expect, and I will be quick with this, but expectations in worship. Let me just read this again. Verse 25. All of this dialogue has taken place. I mean, you you just think about all that Jesus and this woman have run through, even more than is recorded here. Remember later on, she'll say, he told me everything I ever did. They had a long conversation. So all this conversation is reaching a, a, a conclusion here. The woman says to Jesus, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am He. I, the one speaking to you, am He. We get to this point, and we can get a sense of where the woman would be at after all of this. She's moving, isn't she? She's progressing. She's understanding things. She clearly understands that Jesus is seeing her in a unique way, speaking about her sin, speaking about the cleansing, speaking to her about what true worship really ought to be. She has a longing for all this, but she gets to all of this, and what is her, and what is her final statement? You know, I, I need the Messiah to bring the clarity that I require for all of this. I need the Christ. Right? All of this is so big. The fact that God is promising cleansing. The fact that my sin is so so deep and throughout the entirety of my life. The fact that worship is not even remotely how I thought I was supposed to be understanding worship. The fact that all, is, all of this is going on. All of this is running through my mind. The fact that all of this must have been extremely overwhelming to her. What is her response for this? She says, for this I need Christ. Christ will come, and He's going to bring clarity to all of this. And what does Jesus say to her? He doesn't actually just say, I'm the Christ, though that's what, that's what He says. It very literally, He says, I who speak to you, I am. And we remember the context of the woman's own religious background in the first five books of the Bible. How does God reveal Himself to Moses at the burning bush? I am. The Hebrew to be verb, Yahweh. I am. So she says, for this I'm going to need Christ to come and and make all things clear. Jesus not only confesses to her that he himself is the Christ, but he is the Christ who's come as the very revelation of Yahweh himself. He is God incarnate in front of her. And what do we know about I am? Just from his name. He is the God of complete and total supreme self-sufficiency. He just is. He always has been, he is, he ever will be. That's why John can call Jesus the Alpha and the Omega in the book of Revelation. He just is. He exists in the eternality of total self-sufficiency. So Jesus is not only speaking to her saying, I am the Messiah that you need, but he's revealing to her that in the godness of who he is, he's the one who can make provision for the entirety of her concern, for the entirety of the weight she's bearing, for the entirety of of the lack of understanding she's feeling in her own life. He is the God who provides completely because he is the God of total sufficiency. And that is what we need as we walk through this process ourselves. We need to know Christ as the God of total sufficiency. I I need Christ for this, for the cleansing I require. It's more than I totally understand the cleansing I require. These cleansing streams of God, how can this really be applied to me? 
right? For an understanding of the fact that this grace is there for me as I subject myself to a life of worship. I feel so ill-equipped for worship. I feel weak and cold, distant, so often distracted. How can I really offer myself in these ways? Where do we end up when all of this is done? Do we end up saying, oh, I get it, Jesus. I get it. This is all making total sense. Cleansing, yes, check, I, I really needed that. Good to know that's done. I'm really happy with all of that. Do we get to all of this going, check, 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 me, 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 good. I'm glad we had this conversation. No, we get to the end of this, and what do we say? For this, I'm going to need Christ. For this, I'm going to need the Messiah. Because this is bigger than anything I can actually get my head around entirely, and this is more life than I can comprehend, and this is more than I could ever do. Which, of course, Christ comes to us, and He says, I am. I am the one you need. I will be the one you need. And He proves that in His ongoing faithfulness to us over the course of our life, not because we end up worshiping Him in total perfection, not because we're constantly grasping the significance of His cleansing power, not even because we have a full grasp of the reality of our sin, but because He is the God of total self-sufficiency who comes to our rescue. And we rest in that. So we get to the end of this and we, and we don't have to be left feeling like I don't understand these pieces, I need all this worked out perfectly. We can come to the end of this and, this and this is where we rest. For this we need Jesus. For this life we're called to, for this life of cleansing, for this life of worship, for these things we need Christ. And that is exactly what John is trying to get us to see. For this we need Jesus. And so we can be encouraged in this truth as we consider it and uh, reconsider it even through the course of our week. Christ comes as a sufficient one for us, and we look to Him as our ultimate source of only hope. Let's pray. So, Father, please renew us in these truths, and may we see Christ for who He is. We, we need Him. We feel our frailty. We feel our weakness. We feel our coldness of heart so oftentimes. Uh, but, but we want our souls to long for You. We want to be people who worship you in spirit, and we long to do so in a way that pleases you according to your revelation. We want to worship you in truth. We know Christ has cleansed us for it. We know your spirit empowers us for this, and we know in all of these things uh, that we just remain in a constant state of desperate need for Jesus. So, so may we see him in his glory, and may we turn to him and rest in him and trust in him and find in him the salvation that we continue to need. We ask this in his name. Amen.